You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Air Church. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love him and love their neighbour. We pray these sermons serve to deepen your love for and obedience to Jesus. And whilst we trust these podcast sermons bless you, we would not want them to replace you gathering with us personally as you're able to or committing to a local gospel church near you. So if you want to explore Jesus more, gather with us, or find a church near you, please get in touch through our website, harvestair.church. You are loved. Francis, if you would like to keep your Bible open there to Matthew 7, and I'll just pray for us as we uh, come before God's word. Father, we thank you that you are our salvation, that through your sin we can be made right with God, that we can have an eternal hope. We thank you that you've revealed yourself in your word, um, that you continue to speak to us by your spirit through your word. And we just pray as we come before it now that you would give us soft, humble hearts to hear, that you would give us the the grace and the help we need to, to listen, to respond in trust and obedience. And Father, feed our souls in this moment and fill them with joy in Jesus. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. So we've been in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 for quite a few months now, since the beginning of September. And in many ways, as we come to these final two weeks, you and I are facing a fork in the road. In light of who Jesus is, in light of all that he's been saying in Matthew 5 to 7, in light of all that he has done in Matthew 27 to 28 on the cross, we have now, in these two weeks, a response to make. A response that involves choosing ultimately between two different roads. It's a choice between an easy road and a hard road. A road that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. The response Jesus is calling for here is also an urgent one. The kingdom has come. It's already here. Our lives are like vapor, and we are heading for a day when we will stand before our Creator and judge. That's what verse 22 reminds us. There will be a day, and you and I do not know if that day will be today or tomorrow or when it will be. The question for us is, have we responded to all that he's been teaching us and all that he's been saying in faith? And if we have responded, is our faith real? If you're a Christian this morning and you've responded to Jesus already in repentance and faith, then you've chosen the hard way. You've chosen the way that leads to life. The exhortation here is to keep going down that way and to be discerning of what real faith looks like in your own heart and also in the lives of those around you. If you're not a Christian or you're figuring that out or you've drifted and you're coming back, Jesus is saying you're on the wrong road. It's as simple as that this morning. You have a decision of eternal consequence to make. The exhortation here is to get on the right road, the road that leads to life. So really, the response that Jesus is calling for from us this morning is this real faith response to Jesus by taking the hard way of wholehearted obedience. Real faith response to Jesus by taking the hard way of wholehearted obedience. 
Three warnings this morning for you and me. Three warnings regarding real faith. The first one is this. Easy doesn't lead to eternal. Easy doesn't lead to eternal. If you look down at verses 13 to 14, uh, we see Jesus present us with those two ways, those two roads, as it were. Uh, we were across in Edinburgh recently visiting family and uh, it reminded me of uh, if you've ever been up Arthur's Seat or really if you've ever been up any kind of hill or, or monument, you'll know that there's different routes to take in order to get up to Arthur's Seat. There's the, the easier routes and there's the harder routes. There's the harder routes if you start from kind of the Hollywood direction or you can go all the way around the back to uh, the Dunsabi Lock and to the car park there and take the nice short easy way up depending on uh, how fit you are or how much you can be bothered or how wet or or, or not wet it is. But our instinct when it comes to things like that, isn't it, is to take the easiest route. Sometimes we'll put ourselves through the pain of trying to get fit, but instinctively we want to take the, the easiest route up, don't we? Jesus is telling us here that when it comes to our lives, our eternities, there are only two routes. There's only two ways. There's way number one. It's narrow. It's hard. It leads to life, and few take it. Way number two is wide, it's easy, it leads to destruction, and many people take it. And Jesus is saying here, for the sake of your eternity, enter the narrow gate. Don't think about it, don't deliberate, don't come back to me in a week with what decision you've made. He says, enter, enter the narrow gate, take the hard way, don't take the easy way, Easy doesn't lead to eternal life. That's what he's saying this morning. And if we were to dig down for a minute into what he means by narrow and hard and wide and easy, narrow and hard really is pursuing... I'm just going to switch to a handheld here. I don't know what's going on with my mic, so just bear with me. If we were to, to dig down into what easy and, uh, and narrow and hard means... It would help if I turned it on, wouldn't it? What does Jesus actually mean by, by narrow and hard? What's he really getting at here? Well, narrow and hard ultimately is pointing to heart-deep obedience to Jesus. It's pursuing a kind of uh, discipleship that really focuses on our hearts being conformed to Christ's likeness, not just our behavior. The narrow, hard way is pursuing heart change, that's hard. If you've been tracking with this series over the last little while, you'll know that what Jesus is calling us to isn't easy, is it? Heart deep change and obedience. That's hard. It involves hard decisions. It involves real repentance. It involves discipline and endurance and dependence and sacrifice. And yes, it does also involve persecution. Matthew 5, 10 to 11 talks about that. Often when we hear these verses, we think of it's hard in, the, in a persecution sense, and it is. But when we look at what Jesus has been teaching here, we see that the, nar the, the narrow and the hardness is really the, the, the call to heart-deep obedience, to purge anger and lust from our hearts and all the things that he's called us to. The wide and easy way, then, is the hypocritical external obedience that Jesus has been calling out. It's living how I want to live instead of how Jesus calls me to live. It's only obeying Jesus or obeying God when people can see us do that. It's putting on the Sunday show. It's going through the religious motions and routines. That's the easy way. 
And then what does he mean by life and destruction? Well, in many ways, those things speak for themselves. Life is eternal life in heaven. Destruction is eternal death in hell. Jesus couldn't be more stark or simple if he tried. And the fact that there's few and many in the span of history, Jesus is reminding us that in the span of history, and maybe particularly in our cultural moment over the last uh, number of decades, few will take the hard way. Few will do it. Many will take the easy way. Real faith, real faith, if you are wanting to respond in real faith this morning to Jesus, it means being willing to be counted among the few. Choosing to live for Jesus instead of living for ourselves is a matter of eternal urgency. It's a matter of eternal life and death. It's time to respond now for the first time if you're not a Christian. It's time now. Jesus says, enter. And if you're already a Christian, then it's time to keep going down the hard way and to keep pressing on. Maybe it's helpful to consider, how do we know if we're on the hard way? How do we know if we're on the right way? Well, three questions. Are we trusting in Jesus? Are we becoming more like him? And are we obeying his commands? Are we trusting in Jesus? Are we truly saved? Have we experienced biblical conversion? Have we turned from our sin and turned to Jesus in faith based on his finished work on the cross? Do we humbly recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before Jesus and have come to him with empty hands saying, save me? The kind of humility, the kind of spiritual bankruptcy that Jesus began with in Matthew chapter 5. In our membership covenant, which is um, something we use to help us um, understand what it means to live for Jesus and to help each other do that, we have a section called the commitment to biblical conversion. Here's what it says. Do you see yourself in this? Have you identified yourself as being among the number of those who have experienced the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, have personally responded to his work on the cross by way of repentance of sin and faith in him, and have been baptized upon that profession of faith? We believe that biblical conversion is more than just attendance at church. It's more than just being here. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian, but Christians go to church. It's more than just attendance at church, some family connection, or a matter of routine. It's our personal desire to live and act in response to all that Jesus is and all that we know he has done for us. We long for it to bear fruit in our lives as we live out by the power of God's grace through the presence of God the Spirit. So am I trusting in Jesus? Have I been truly saved? Am I depending on him? Second question, are we becoming more like him in character? If you flick back to Matthew chapter 5 and, and just reflecting on this this past week, so important. Is our life marked by the kind of character that Jesus describes here? Humility about our sin, hunger for righteousness, hunger to be changed, to be transformed. Is that hunger and humility then reflected in our relationships with those around us? Are we merciful people? Are we pure in heart? Are we pursuing purity? Are we peacemakers? Or are we conflict causers? In verse 10 and 11 in chapter 5, are we willing to endure hardship and persecution like Jesus? Are those things increasingly true of our lives? 
Are we different to those around us? That's what salt and light was getting at. Are we different? Are we willing to stand firm on the truth of the Bible when the beliefs of the world around us press in? Third question, are we obeying the commands of Jesus? Do our lives increasingly reflect the kind of disciple Jesus has called us to in Matthew 5 to 7? We're not perfect yet. We still make mistakes. But over the span of our lives, are we increasingly becoming more like Christ? What does the kind of heart obedience look like that Jesus calls us to? The hard, narrow heart obedience. It's all the things we've been thinking about. Dealing with heart anger, being quick to repent and reconcile towards one another, pursuing obedience to Jesus, commands when it comes to sex and relationships. The only context for that being between one man and one woman in lifelong covenant marriage. Working hard at our marriages and not choosing easy divorce. Keeping our word honestly and with integrity. Living out our faith unhypocritically. From the heart, not boastfully and loudly before other people so they can see us. Using our money and our resources for the building of God's kingdom, not our own. Trusting God's promises regarding his provision. Judging others with humility which we thought about last week. Are we increasingly growing in those things? Do we take those things seriously? That's the hard way. That's the narrow way. That's the way that few people will walk. It requires making hard decisions for the sake of our holiness. It requires enduring when things aren't easy. It requires persevering when persecution and pressure come our way. It will always mean not being part of the crowd. Do you get that yet? Are you willing to live like that? It will always mean being in the minority and not being part of the crowd. Yet it's the way that leads to eternal life, to eternal joy, to eternal pleasure, to eternal happiness. Make no mistake, this way is hard it's narrow, it requires heart obedience, it requires hard decisions about our holiness, but holiness produces true happiness in this life. It's not all future. Pursuing holiness now in this life brings real happiness. Enduring to the end leads to eternal life. Persevering leads to the promise of joy and pleasure at God's right hand. And we might not be part of the crowd, but we get to be part of God's eternal family, the church. And key in all this for you and me is keeping our eyes fixed on the future. That's why Jesus tells us where this road leads. He doesn't leave us to guess. He tells us what the destination is. That's how we keep going. We keep our eyes fixed on the destination. That's how we joyfully endure having a clear sight of what lies ahead, a clear sight of Jesus. That's what stops us crumbling when the pressure comes and compromising when it comes to our obedience. Maybe as you're hearing these things, you're thinking a number of things. Maybe, first of all, I haven't decided yet. Jesus says you must. A non-decision is a decision. Maybe you're thinking, I've drifted. Jesus says, there's time to come back. There is forgiveness and grace available. Or maybe in your mind you're thinking, I just don't care. Jesus says you should. 
you're headed for destruction. And maybe thinking, I'm doubting. I'm doubting, I'm struggling. I'm trying to grow, but I'm doubting. Jesus says, look to me. Look outside of yourself, look to me. Rest in my righteousness as you pursue personal holiness. It's the hard way, we'll make mistakes, yet the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has walked the hard way before us. He has walked the hard way before us so that we might have life. Jesus has done what we in our sin couldn't do. The gospel isn't take the hard way to gain eternal life. It's take the hard way. I've already bought eternal life for you. I've already conquered the hard way for you. And if you're trusting in me, I'm right there with you. And I will keep you to the end. Keep going. That's what Jesus says to us if our faith is in him. That's why Jesus goes on then to warn us as well about what is false. We need truth. So how do we stay on, uh, on the, the hard way? What gets us on the hard way? Well, it's truth. Truth is what enables us to enter and then keeps us on track as we take the hard way. That's why he then goes on to warn us about what is false. So three warnings regarding real faith. Few will find, or sorry, easy doesn't lead to eternal and false doesn't bear fruit. That's the second warning. If you look down at verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So the truth matters. The truth is what gets us on the hard way. It's what keeps us on the hard way. Therefore, Jesus is warning us about things which would take us away from the truth and take us away from the right road. He's warning us of something we will, okay, not might, we will encounter as we seek to live for him. That's false teaching. There will be those who try to lead us away from Jesus by what they teach. There will be those who say, you can take the easy way and follow Jesus. Or you don't need to take the way at all. It's all made up. There will be those who claim to be prophets or teachers or preachers or even ordinary Christians who will seek to lead us astray. And this is not some kind of faraway reality. Sometimes we read these things in the Bible and we think, I don't really actually know. But given the, the availability we have of Bible teaching online, given the amount of books that exist in our day, make no mistake that these things are a reality. And they're a reality in our time. And they're a reality we must be on guard for even within this own church. The reality that verse 15 points to is that these people will be deceptive. Jesus says that they will be like wolves dressed up as sheep. That picture of sheep, isn't it, that kind of projects innocence and harmlessness. What harm could a sheep do? But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. Wolves are ferocious. They're ravenous. They're out to devour and to destroy. This is where the judgment come, bit comes in from last week, doesn't it? Yes, we are to be graciously, uh, gracious and humble in how we judge one another, but we need to exercise wisdom. We need to exercise wisdom. We can't be foolish. And one of the big reasons for that is because there are wolves about. That's what makes the road, part of the reason that makes the road hard. 
The deceptive nature of false teaching requires us to be spiritually discerning. It will rarely be obvious. It will usually be deceptive. What form might that teaching take? Well, a number of ways. Ultimately, in relation to the gospel and God's word, it can come in the form of addition. You need to do something else. You need faith plus being a good person. Or maybe it's subtraction, removing or obscuring key doctrines or beliefs. Things like hell. Maybe it's just straight up contradiction. For example, other religions which say Jesus is not God. That just flat out contradicts what he himself said of himself. And maybe exploitation is another significant form of false teaching. And actually, when you dig into the word ravenous that is used here in the text, really behind that is, is, is the meaning of swindling or robbing. We maybe think of those who proclaim that if you believe in Jesus, you'll be perfectly healthy. You'll get all the material things you want. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. There are people out there who are looking to exploit. And if they have a private jet and live in a big house and have lots of cars and clothes, alarm bells should be going off. That kind of goes without saying. How do we recognize this false teaching? Maybe just a number of helpful ways to navigate that. First of all, if they have no Bible, they have no Bible in front of them, if they're not speaking from the Bible, we're in big trouble. If they have a different authority, a different book, maybe there's little Bible. Maybe they have a Bible, but there's very little of it. Maybe they're skipping around the Bible. They're using the Bible to support their conclusions rather than drawing their conclusions from the Bible. Maybe there's lots of opinions and reflections, but no biblical revelation. If you can't see what they're saying in the text, things are in trouble. If you can't see what they're saying in the text, things are in trouble. If they abandon historic orthodoxy, and what I mean by that is the beliefs of the church based on God's revelation that have been accepted for 2,000 years. If people start questioning those or straying from those, we're in big trouble. And maybe one other form of, maybe not false teaching, but potentially destructive teaching is those who seem to be pointing out everyone else's false doctrine. Who seem to create a platform or make it their business to name and shame every false prophet that ever lived. It's not that there's not a place for warning and being discerning. Beware those who point out everyone else's flaws and faults doctrinally, especially when it's done without humility and grace. And here's the big one. So how do we discern false teaching? Here's the big one that Jesus gives us here in this text and also throughout the rest of the Bible. False teaching will not bear fruit. It will not bear fruit. One of the main ways we discern false teaching is by watching out for the character and the conduct of those who we're listening to. And also looking at the fruit of those who are following them. Because truth produces a truly transformed life. Therefore, if the truth is getting twisted or there's no truth, then eventually there will be no fruit. Jesus repeats it twice. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Verses 16 to 18 tell us that in the, in the same way a diseased tree just cannot produce fruit, 
It cannot bear good fruit, so too false prophets cannot bear the fruit of a truly changed life. Okay, and the assumption here, of course, is that fruit grows over time, so it might not be immediately obvious. Just like the way an apple doesn't grow, come out of nowhere on, on a tree, fruit takes time to, to appear. It's not necessarily immediate, but time will tell. Time will reveal all. That's why they're wolves in sheep's clothing. It's not immediately obvious, but it will become obvious both in their lives and in the lives of those who choose to follow them. What exactly are we looking out for in terms of bad fruit? Well, Second Peter has quite a lot to say about the kind of bad fruit we should be on guard for. He says this, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality do whatever they want. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Second Peter 2 verse 10, they will despise authority. Beware of anyone who finds it hard to humble themselves or submit themselves to anyone or anything. Second Peter 2 14, they have eyes full of adultery. How many people have fallen to sexual immorality, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. And sadly, there are all too many stories of, of church leaders, church teachers, those who claim to be Bible teachers who have fallen to these things. You don't have to look far. Not many weeks go by when that's not a reality. And the stark reminder for us is that we need to be watchful of that and we need to be watchful of ourselves, lest we fall too. Why should we be aware of this false teaching? We'll look down at verse 19. False teaching leads them, and if we follow them, it will lead us into the eternal fire. That's what verse 19 tells us. How do we guard ourselves against it then? A number of things. Know God's word well. Know God's word well to help you discern what is truth and untruth. Take personal responsibility for that. Sit under sound preaching with your Bible in your hand and open. Don't sit under preaching which is palatable to the world or to our own sinful passions. 2 Timothy 4 says this, I charge you, this is Paul writing to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove your book, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Sit under preaching, which is sound, submit to sound elders, Continuing in the New Testament, we see the difference between those who would lead astray and those who should lead the church. Titus 1, 5-9, and also 1 Timothy 3, both talk about the characteristics of church leaders, and they are completely opposite to the kind of false prophets that 2 Peter talks about. 
Titus 1 says this, this is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what into order what remains and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one, one wife, sexually, maritally faithful. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Not out to exploit you, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So submission to leadership, to eldership, is so that you can both, yes, personally discern God's Word, but have the help you need to be able to discern what is unhelpful and untrue. Because the leadership of the church is primarily responsible to guard the church from false doctrine. Learn from other mature, wise Christians. It's another way to guard yourself. Benefit from other sources of teaching with discernment. So I'm not saying don't go online. I'm not saying don't read books. But maybe in our age particularly when everything is so accessible so quickly, without filter, benefit from those sources, but with discernment. And maybe if you consider, if one of the primary ways we discern false teaching is by an by seeing the fruit of the lives of those we're listening to, maybe that's a caution or a warning for us to learn primarily from those whose lives you can watch. It's not that we shouldn't learn from other people or other books or other things. I do that. But learning primarily from those whose lives we can watch means we can see the fruit of what they're actually teaching, both in themselves and in those who listen to them. If you sat under false teaching or unhelpful teaching or sat under abusive or exploitive leadership, then let me just say that's not how it should be. That's not how it should be. That's not what the church is supposed to be like. Jesus is not that kind of shepherd. Jesus does not long for his under shepherds to be those kind of people. And it will require some time and effort to detox yourself from that and to heal from that experience. Know that we are here to help you with that if that is true of you. And know this. In some ways, it, you can kind of look at this and go, oh man, there's all these people who are out to kind of lead me astray and to tell me false things. Know this. False teachers cannot thwart the building of Christ's church. Jesus promises to build the church. No amount of false teaching can stop that. The gospel and God's word will always prevail. They hold up. They always hold up. Jesus is the good shepherd who protects his sheep. He promises that. In the end, his sheep will endure. And verse 19 tells us false teachers will be dealt with. Jesus doesn't turn a blind eye. And that brings us to our third point. Fake will be found out. Three warnings regarding real faith this morning. Easy doesn't lead to eternal. False doesn't bear fruit and fake will be found out. If you look down at verses 21 to 23, I'm just going to read them again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sober verses, right? When it comes to standing before Jesus on that day of judgment, a confession of Jesus as Lord, a true confession of Jesus as Lord, must be accompanied by a transformed life. The most important thing will not be what gifts we have, what things we have done, even miraculous things. What is most important is, are we trusting in his grace? And are we by grace evidencing that through our obedience to his commands? Not just a profession, I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but verse 21 obeying the Father's will, obeying the law of Christ. I think it was Martin Luther that once said, faith alone saves. We only enter by faith in Christ alone, resting in his righteousness. But the faith that saves is never alone. It will always produce the fruit of obedience and good works. And that's what they weren't doing. They weren't obeying the Father's will. They were lawless. They said they believed in Jesus, but they didn't live like it. And they're going to be found out. Sinclair Ferguson says on these verses, and I think this is helpful. He says this, It is possible to exercise spiritual gifts, in this case, prophecy, miracles, casting out demons. You kind of think if someone was doing that, they must be a believer. It's possible to exercise spiritual gifts yet be a total stranger to God's grace. The astounding things people can do in public is no certain indication of where they stand in private before the judgment of Jesus. What really counts is how we are related to Christ himself. That is why the gospel has so much more to say about the power of Christ changing our characters than about the power of Christ changing the course of nature. That distinction is a timely warning to our own generation. We are easily mesmerized by people with unusual powers, as was Jesus' generation. We are fascinated with signs. The true prophet is far more interested in grace than in gifts, both in his own life and in the lives of those to whom he ministers. So when it comes to others, Jesus says, don't be fooled exercise wise judgment and discernment. When it comes to ourselves, these verses say, don't be fake. Confession of Christ must be accompanied by conforming to the image of Christ, obeying his commands. That is what will count on the last day. If we go around telling people we believe in God, we believe in Jesus while choosing to live a life of lawlessness, a life where we pick and choose what commands to obey, Jesus says, you will be found out. To say I believe in Jesus, yet store up my money for myself, sleep with whoever I like, say whatever I like, schedule my life however I like, stand in harsh judgment over others, only give worship and prayer in church to be seen by others, never commit to and serve within the church, our fakeness will be found out. And we won't be able to fake it forever. Jesus demands our whole hearts. 
He demands your whole hearts. He doesn't want your just dry external obedience. He doesn't want our half-heartedness. He demands our whole hearts. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount has been about. He demands total obedience and allegiance to Him. And those who fake it, those who say, I believe in Jesus, but don't actually evidence it, will be found out. That's what he's saying here. The bad news is that our hearts are by nature lawless. The bad news is that our lawlessness, our hypocrisy, our fakeness must be punished. They can't go unpunished. But the good news is this. Jesus doesn't demand of us what he himself hasn't already done for us. The good news is that Jesus has come down to earth, taken the punishment for our lawlessness, and given us new hearts. That's what he offers us. He obeyed the Father's will perfectly. His heart was not marked by lawlessness, but by perfect obedience. He perfectly fulfilled the law. That's what Matthew 5, 17 taught us. Matt Smithurst, Matt Smithurst which, which I quoted this in, in, when we were thinking about Matthew 5, 17, says this, the lawmaker became the lawkeeper and then died for the lawbreakers. We are by nature lawless people, but the lawmaker has become the lawkeeper and died for lawbreakers like you and me. That's the good news of the gospel. Therefore, our response to all of this, our response to this kind of life, this kind of discipleship, this kind of heart, our response gets to be, must be repentance from our lawlessness, turning to Jesus in faith, uniting ourselves to Him, clinging to Him, to His righteousness, to His obedience, bearing the fruit of repentance by the strength of His Spirit, and having confidence that on that day we won't be found to be fake because of Jesus. We can have that confidence, by the way, we're united to Jesus by faith. We won't be found to be fake on the last day. We will, we will be welcomed by our Father. Real faith responds to Jesus by taking the hard way of wholehearted obedience. If you don't know Jesus or claim to know Him but aren't living for Him as He calls us to, don't delay. Come to Him. Be forgiven and be changed by him. Experience life now as it was meant to be and gain eternal life. And if you're a Christian, Jesus isn't out to make those who are already his disciples doubt. Okay, that's not what this passage is doing, by the way. Jesus has not gone out of his way as he's teaching his disciples to make them doubt. He's helping them to discern real faith both in others and also in ourselves. There is a sense in which we should examine our lives and our hearts against Jesus' commands. But Jesus has not gone out of his way here to make you doubt your salvation. He's teaching us discernment. And know that our assurance comes primarily from what Jesus has done for us, his promises to keep us, yet our obedience does matter. It's not inconsequential. Our assurance comes primarily from what he has done, from his promises. Yet our obedience still matters. Your obedience still matters. Your day-to-day -day obedience still counts for something. We need to examine where our hearts and our lives are at. We need to repent from where we've drifted and return where it is required. But as we do that, okay, hear me this morning, as you do that, as you examine your heart, 
as you discern real faith, if you're a disciple, for every look at yourself, as Robert Murray McShane says, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. The temptation is to over-examine, to become dangerously introspective. Follow McShane's advice. Do what Jesus calls us to do. Look to him. For every look at yourself, ten, look ten, take 10 looks at Christ. Keep going, keep obeying as we keep looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's what he calls us to. If you're a disciple, keep going. Keep obeying. And keep looking to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith. Just before Derek comes up to lead us around the Lord's table, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to come around and be assured and be um, reminded of the sacrifice and promises of Jesus as we do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the assurance of the gospel. Father, we pray for your spirit to help us discern our own hearts, to help discern the hearts and the, and the faith of those around us, Father. Father, protect us from anything that would lead us astray from Jesus. Protect us from taking the easy way out. Guard our hearts from being tempted to give up, to bend your commands. Help us by the strength of your spirit to obey your commands and help us, Father, in our weakness and in our sinfulness and in our wandering and in our drifting to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to know the confidence of adoption in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.